is, is shock trauma and the rushings are being taken to Sinai to be checked out. That's all of that. I don't know any real significant update other than uh, I knew the rushings were okay, but they are going to Sinai to be checked out. So let's keep them all in our prayers. We, let's open our Bibles together. We are uh, continuing to make our way through the book, uh, book of Samuel this morning. We're in 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we're basically going to cover chapter 3. We'll barely dip our toes into chapter 4. This is one of those really perfect examples where you, uh, you kind of wonder what they were thinking when they made the chapter divisions, you know. Uh, it, so in chapter 1, we met Hannah, the, uh, the righteous sufferer. And in chapter 2, thank you, we, uh, we, when God had heard her prayers, she sang... Um, of the coming reversal, the great coming reversal. Uh, her song is both a, a personal celebration as well as a prophecy for mankind. Uh, she sang of the blessedness that she experienced because she had made the Lord her refuge. And um, the day, ha the Lord has a day when the, the proud, the high, and the mighty are going to be brought low. Uh, because God is a lifter of the lowly. And, uh, and somehow all of this, the, 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 the breaking down of the lofty and the lifting up of the lowly is, uh, is connected with his coming king, the anointed one or, or Messiah from the Hebrew, Messiah or, or Christos from the Greek. This is where that notion of Messiah really enters. But then we, uh, we saw something else in chapter 2. We got to know Hophni and Phinehas. We got to see a little of how the, the priestly proce procedures that had been laid out so carefully uh, by Moses weren't being followed. Not everything was different, of course. You know, you still had the sanctuary. They were still, uh, you know, the, the lampstand was there. The showbread was there. It's there. And people are offering their sacrifices in worship, which is kind of amazing, uh, given what they faced when they got there. Uh, the priests were greedy and abusive. They spurned the rules. But, you know, what could you do as a worshiper? This is where the altar was. And as wicked as they were, these were God's appointed intermediaries. It wasn't like today. You know, if I abuse you like, like Eli, like uh, Hophni or Phinehas abused the worshipers, you'd be gone because there's other folds where you could be cared for and protected and fed. You wouldn't have to sit under, under me abusing you. Uh, but that wasn't the situation for them. And we know it's a, it was a rather common sentiment among those who did come for worship under them uh, because a response, there's a response that spread far and wide. There's a report of what's going on that is spreading far and wide. And it's a negative report of what happens at the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, God's whole plan is for a report to go forth, but it's good news, not bad news, that he wants to go forth. And, uh, you know, 
Eli had warned his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, because they didn't, but you know, they, did, they didn't listen because God was intent to destroy them. Um, but he warned them. But meanwhile, Samuel grows up. And you know, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. But then came this prophet, and he, he tells Eli, disaster's coming. Um, you know, the, the, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. It was a... I guess you'd call it a privilege, except that the prophets come to convict you. <laughs> but uh, rare or not, the Lord sent a prophet to Eli to warn him, to convict him, that he might take the warning and stop his sons from what they're doing. But Eli didn't listen. We know he didn't listen because the Lord delivers essentially the same message to Samuel. Let's dive in. Again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 3. Let's read the first three verses. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark was. What does it mean for the word to be rare? Or I should ask it this way. Why was the word of the Lord rare in those days? Eventually we're going to see Saul, uh, King Saul... <laughs> Use a medium, the witch at Endor, to, to call up Samuel from the dead. And um, in order that Samuel might give him some, some guidance. You know why he needs that guidance? Because God stopped talking to him. When he, he says this to Samuel. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I'm in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. So God not answering, God no longer speaking, that's a judgment. That's a, that's a disciplinary act. Listen to what the prophet Amos is going to say to God's obstinate people. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. So, the word of the Lord being rare in those days, what, what does that suggest? It suggests that the people are not listening, not heeding the word that has been given. And that leads to the Lord withholding his word. Now, we've already been told that Eli's old. Uh, Eli was old when his boys were doing all those nasty things. 
Um, well, we're going to be told that his eye, we're told now that his eyesight is no longer good. How old is Samuel at this time? It's really hard to know. And we're going to run into this again when we meet, uh, you know, David and Goliath and sequencing that and getting the ages right. It's sometimes difficult. Uh, but he, he's a young boy, and that's relevant. Um, God introduces, or he's young, but that's relevant. God introduces us to Samuel right from his very birth, even giving you what leads up to his birth. Um, so he's brought from the very beginning uh, from the lowest place there is. Whereas when we meet Hophni and Phinehas, they're already in authority. They're already proud and exalted. Now think of Hannah's song. The, the proud will be brought down. The humble will be lifted up, right? And that's the pattern for the book. And likewise, Saul is going to begin head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. So when he starts, he starts exalted. He's going to be brought low. David who is a little shepherd boy, so insignificant that he's not even summoned with his brothers, is brought, and exalt, is brought high and exalted. Now, did you notice where Samuel was when this happened? Eli was lying in his place, and where is that? Uh, we only know about it, really, that it's within earshot of the sanctuary because... Samuel, who's lying in the sanctuary, thinks that he hears Eli, right? Now, when you read this story, especially having just come through Exodus together, it seems like things are just a little bit different than they were laid out. They seem to have taken a, this very portable sanctuary, uh, this tent, and, and put some semi-permanent things on it. I have friends who have a... Uh, uh, they've got a little piece of property in Chincoteague, and they've got a trailer on it. Actually, there's three trailers because it's a family thing. Uh, but So this is a trailer. You can hook it up to a car and pull it away, right? Well, they've built porches on it. So they've taken something that's portable, and they've turned it into a semi-permanent thing. It seems like something like that has happened at Shiloh. But the basics are still the same, and that makes this story really, really strange. Where does it say Samuel is lying? He's lying where the ark of God was. Now, is that in the Holy of Holies or is it in the holy place? It's really hard to say. Um, but notice that Samuel isn't judged for being there at all. Don't you find that fascinating? Uzzah's going to be struck dead when he reaches out to steady the ark when the oxen stumble. A bunch of Israelites are struck dead when they look in the ark. Samuel is lying there, and the Lord is not judging him. So what's he doing? Is he babysitting the lamps? Uh, they were supposed to burn throughout the night. We read this in Leviticus 24. Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before your, the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generation. In the Second Chronicles, we read this. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices, set out the showbread of the table of pure gold, on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn every evening. 
for we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you've forsaken him. But there's nothing saying, so you have to light the lamps in the beginning of the evening, and they burn all night, but there's nothing saying you have to sit there with it while it's burning. Um, nevertheless, he's there, and uh, we can tell that about the time of day it is because the lamp has not gone out, but that sort of implies that it's near to going out, right? So it's, it's really late night or, or early morning. It's before the dawn. Um, and I do think that there are subtle and not-so-subtle literary allusions here. Um, he's there with the light, the lampstand. And just as the light is about to be extinguished, which could easily, you know, you could easily see as a literary playing on there being no frequent vision. Just then, the word of the Lord dawns on him. And by the end of the chapter, it's shining forth to everybody through him. See, that's what the lampstand revealed, if you remember, in its symbolism. Um, it captured the life that is the light of the world, right? Or the light that is the life of the world. You can say it either way. Um, it's about illuminating the darkness. It's about granting us understanding, opening our eyes, removing the veils. There are so many ways of saying it. Letting us see the truth. And I think the same thing uh, is, is in the case of Eli's eyesight. It's just degeneration with age from one vantage point, and yet, who may, not everybody's eyes go bad with age. His did, because God's sovereign. And it's recorded for us. I think there's a literary play there on inability of this priest to see. The light is almost out in Israel. And then there's a dawning through, uh, through Samuel. Um, so that's the setting in which God introduces himself to Samuel. And it's, both, it's both a familiar story and a simple one to understand. Uh, it's cute. It's sweet even, you know, uh, running to, his, to, to Eli over and over. Didn't you call me? No, go back to bed. Um, let's read it. Then the Lord said, called Samuel and he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. He said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Now, under, remember, he's growing in favor with God and men, right? So this isn't the same thing as was said of Hophni and Phinehas when they didn't know the Lord. There's a key word here. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Then Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. So, remember... Hophni and Phinehas, their not knowing the Lord is set in parallel to them being sons of Belial, right? These are worthless men. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. But with Samuel, 
I think what we're looking at is the ordinary experience of a covenant child. You know, my own boys, um, I've been here since 2007, so they were pretty young when we got here, and, and we've been setting up the sanctuary since we got here. So all their lives they've been setting up chairs, setting up chairs so you can worship. you appreciate then that they were serving in a way kind of analogous to what Samuel is doing. Um, before the good news really dawned on my own son's hearts so that they grasped it and accepted it for themselves, they were already serving, right? I think it's the same with, with, with Samuel. He's growing up as a covenant child, and the Lord is going to reveal himself to him in his time, but he's being faithful. Now, Samuel's experience is not the same as that of my boys or any of us. I mean, God doesn't speak to us this way anymore. Uh, he used to speak in a lot of different ways, at a lot of different times, Hebrews tells us, but his final speech is son speech. Son perfectly and completely reveals to us the Father. Nothing more need be said. And Samuel's being called the prophet here. That's different from anything my boys would have experienced. And most people think that that's what's in view here when he says he didn't know, yet know the Lord. The Lord did not reveal him. It's, it's not so much as a matter of his faith that it is, it is, it is lack of an experience of divine prophetic vision. Well, notice, too, that the, the character of Samuel. Eli's old, so uh, when, when Samuel hears his name, uh, he goes running. Why? Well, he loves Eli. Eli has raised him, and he's blind now. Eli is essentially uh, dependent on Samuel to wait on him, and it's just kind of sweet. He hears Samuel, and he goes running. Over and over. I think by the third time, I might have been kind of ornery. So that's the sweet part. But then God introduces him to Samuel, himself to Samuel with a, with a prophecy of judgment. Um, judgment on this man for whom Samuel obviously cares. He has love and respect for this man who he's about to have to deliver some very bad news to. Verses 10 to 14, the Lord came and stood, calling at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Impending doom. That's the message that Samuel is given. Disaster is about to happen. And when it does, everyone who hears of it, their two ears are going to tingle. What does that mean? 
That's kind of a strange idiom, isn't it? And, and you know, in, um, in Hebrew, uh, to be angry is to get your nose hot. So uh, I'm not exactly sure uh, what to make of it. I, I think the point is that this is going to be a, a message that goes forth um, and everybody is going to be moved by it somehow. It is going to, uh, their, their ears are going to take notice of it. Remember that, that a report has already being, been being spread abroad about the sanctuary. A bad report of what Hophni and Phineas are doing. Um, well, this news is going to counter that. This is a different report that is going to go out. God is holy, and judgment begins at the household of God. Listen to the words of Peter. He says that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now look at verse 12. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. So a prophecy already came. The, the man of God uh, came back in chapter 2, right? And gave essentially this same message. I will fulfill all that I have spoken about Eli's house. Why did... God gives Samuel this message. He's already given this message to Eli through another prophet. Why not just drop the hammer? He's been warned. Well, prophecies have a purpose. There is a reason that the Lord sends a prophet. And it's not generally predicted. I mean... We hear the word prophet and we think predict the future. And here's the thing. They, they usually just proclaim the word of the Lord. Sometimes that included a prediction. But even then, even when it does, like here, there's, it's, it's not, the prediction isn't the purpose. The purpose is repentance. It, it's a redemptive purpose to send a prophet to warn you. God sent that prophet to Eli so that he would repent. So that he would at least remove his sons from office. But he didn't do it. He didn't listen to that prophet. Listen to something else Peter says. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He knew, verse 13, he knew and he didn't something them. I have no idea what he was supposed to do. Uh, it's probably remove them or restrain them. Uh, you, you, you can't translate it this way, but the word probably means to put them in a state of impotence, to, to make them inactive somehow. But while that prophecy is supposed to make you repent, it's not an idle threat. So in that sense, it is predictive. When Jonah preached to Nineveh that in yet three days the Lord is going to destroy this city, they repented in sackcloth and ashes, and so the Lord relented. 
But what if they hadn't? We have to assume that Nineveh would have been destroyed. So the prophecy has a purpose. And that purpose has to do with God's patience, his beneficent intent toward humanity. But his patience does have an end point. There is a day of wrath that has been decreed. The fact that Hophni and Phinehas scoff at that idea. They they sin as though with impunity, like there's no judgment coming. They're constantly spilling the blood that declares the wrath of God against sin, and they just don't get it. That's related not only to their fall, but also to the dearth of the word in the land at the time. Israel's leaders weren't listening So the word became rare. Nevertheless, rare as it was, the Lord did send the prophet with a warning, right? He said, I entrusted this great privilege to your father's house, but now declares the Lord, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Remember that from chapter 2? And then he drops this bomb. Some time ago, potentially years ago, that warning that went unheeded, he said, behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. Then, see, this predictive. Just like to Nineveh, yet in three days you'll be destroyed. He gives him this prediction of the destruction of his household. So Samuel's not going to tell Eli anything that Eli hasn't already heard before from a different prophet. I don't know whether Samuel knew that or not. Probably not. But... Eli's not going to hear anything new from Samuel. Now, I don't understand how to, uh, I don't know how to understand the curse of of verse 14. Um, I don't think that this curse cuts Eli himself off from eternal life. I expect to meet Eli in heaven. But it's scary, isn't it? It's not going to go well for Hophni or Phinehas or any of Eli's descendants. That much is clear. So so Samuel, he's gotten this this message. He's met the Lord, but he's gotten this message. And he's not exactly up and at him in the morning. You know, uh, he's just been told something that he would much rather keep to himself, but he's not going to be allowed to. He lays there until it's time to open the sanctuary. But Eli calls him. Despite his fear, he puts him under a maledictory oath. And, and we've seen what the, high, what the high priest can do, even if he's a wicked high priest. So uh, Samuel is wise to spill the beans, all of them. Now, notice Eli's response. Let's read it in verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God to do, so, do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now we skipped the book of Joshua. But you're familiar with the, the, the battle of Jericho, right? Where they walk around and around and around and then the walls fall down. And, and they weren't allowed to have any of that plunder because this was, uh, this, this was a God's victory. They're going to get plunder from the, from the other 
the others. But this one, God's doing it all. He's showing it that way. And so they're not allowed to have any of the plunder. Well, Achan, just some Israelite, Achan, he sees some booty, some spoil of war, and he takes it and he hides it. Do you remember the story? And it causes disaster at the next battle at Ai. God does not give them victory even though Ai is, is no real competition militarily. Now, that led to, uh, you know, everybody asking what's going on, and the Lord revealed that it was Achan. Now, listen to this exchange. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, this is the guy who stole everything, you know. He's addressing the, 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 the thief. He says, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. You see that? Tell me what you've done. Don't hide it from me. What is that to do? If, if I tell you what I've done and don't hide it from you, what is that? It is giving pray, glory to the Lord and praise to him. Confessing my sins glorifies the Lord. Now, so he cops everything. Achan did. And he confessed. Now, God let judgment fall on Achan and his household. He was stunned with his household, everything they had. God often exacts swift punishment, especially at significant turning points in redemptive history. He does so to make a point that he demands holiness. But he's patient, giving us time to repent. So he doesn't generally punish immediately. Now, that could make some of us complacent and begin to be like Hophni and Phinehas. That's dangerous. Now, was Achan an unbeliever? Well, he was certainly disobedient and couldn't have chosen a worse time in redemptive history to be disobedient. The sin of Achan was awful, and I'm not making light of it when I say I expect to meet Achan in heaven. I'm not sure I will. How could I be? But I know this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, for Achan, better to be stoned for my sin and enter heaven than to conceal my sin and go to hell. Now let's look at another believer's response to a message of judgment from God. It's in Isaiah 39. You know, the good king Hezekiah, he's a good king. He's one of the few. He's one of the few good kings there are. This good king, he doesn't want to die. He's told he's about to die. Get your house in order. And he, he doesn't want to. And he pleads with the Lord, oh, give me some more time. And the Lord relents. And he gives him 15 extra years. Uh, and with those extra years... He undoes some of his wonderful legacy. The, the king of this new little nation called Babylon sends envoys to Hezekiah, and he gives them a tour, and, and this word came to him. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. That's an odd thought, isn't it? Seems a rather selfish thought to me. And that's a good guy! So I think Eli's kind of a tragic figure in that he didn't exactly shine in his days under the sun. But I think he's a believer. Okay, let's finish the passage. Picking up verse 19. Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So what's the point? The the point is what God is doing. There was no king in Israel at this time. Everyone was doing as they saw fit. And there was no frequent vision because the spokesmen had become deaf. They weren't hearing the the word to pass it on. They can't hear what they refuse to listen to. Well, God's not going to leave his beloved people there. And that's the takeaway that I want you to appreciate, is look at the heart of God in this passage. The heart of God for you, His people. People need a king. A king will shepherd God's people. That is, He's going to guide them and guard them. But most importantly, He's going to represent them. Yeah, there's this sacrificial system, and Aaron and his descendants represented the people before the Lord, right? They were high priests representing the people before the Lord. But with the institution of the kingship, we're going to see that the king becomes their representative too. And in fact, um, that's part of the hint at what God's doing. He's raising up a royal priesthood through his anointed king who will be a priest of a different order. Christ is fulfilling all of these offices. So, as we move forward in redemptive history, you'll notice that as the piety of the king, so the prosperity of the people. He becomes their representative. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ who represents us in his life that he lived for you. And then his laying down his life to pay your sin. So, How Israel is doing becomes intimately tied up with how their king is doing. So that's where we're going in all of this. But what's the purpose of today's passage? What's the takeaway? Well, again, I think it's about what God is doing. I mean, there's a lot of little lessons in this passage for us, you know, uh, about responding to the word, uh, being doers of the word, not merely hearers of it. Um, Don't resist the spirit. Confess. Your sin, even if it costs you everything in this life, because nothing in this life is worth the next. So there's lots of little things for us here, but I think the point is in what God's doing. He will not leave his people without shepherds. You know, in in the Middle Ages, or by the Middle Ages, some some bad characters had had corrupted much of the church, kind of like Hophni and Phinehas had, 
And when the church became enslaved to false teachers, only interested in money and power, the Lord raised up a servant to bring light in the darkness in Martin Luther. The church had corrupted the gospel itself, making our righteousness something that was declared at the end of a life. It was lived well enough rather than the true gospel that it's a declaration that God has declared us righteous, not for our works, but only for Christ's works and received by faith alone. That's what God does. God loves us. Yes, um, sometimes there are bad leaders in God's church. Woe to them. And may I never be like them. So takeaway, though, is this. Look at God's character in this passage. He is patient. Look how he dealt with Eli. He warns and he warns. He gives time. He loves his church. He loves you, brother or sister. He will judge me more strictly because of his love for you. That's terrifying. But not really. You know why? I'm not terrified by that. Because my job is to tell you what he's really like. And he is lovely. He is kind. He is merciful. For those of us who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we don't enter into judgment. We've passed from death to life. Yes, there's coming a day of judgment. And if you don't know the comfort of his love such that you can confess your sin no matter what it costs you in this life because you know that his love extends to the next, well, then you do need to tremble. But the takeaway is obviously on the dawning of the word of God at a period of great darkness in the history of God's people. And that dawning of truth and light, that's about God setting the record straight about his character. A bad report had gone out, and he's sending out a different report. Judgment is coming, brothers and sisters. And judgment begins with the household of God. So let's be holy as he is holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn. So wrath is coming. And if you don't know the comfort of God's grace, repent and find it. But if you know the Lord is your Savior, don't you great, gain a great deal of confidence as you behold the character of your God here. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That faithfulness is shown to his people. 
when the enemy would shut them off from the word of God, God says, no, I will break through the darkness because I love my people. That's what I'm saying when I, when I say the, the heart of God is the point here. Don't you realize how much God loves you? So hold fast, hang on, hang in there. Your God loves you so much that he will deal decisively with anyone who harms you. Touch not the Lord's anointed. And if you are listening to the word and submissive and attentive to it, if you trust in the gospel of the good news, then the word of the Lord is going to be plentifully given to you. To him who has, more will be given. But there is an implicit warning. Even though this message is entirely good news, God shines his light into the darkness, right? To light the path of his children. Even so, understand, as you, as you resist the word of the Lord, you become callous to it, perhaps to the point when you could never hear it anymore. So let's pray that that not be the case for us, that we might rejoice in the love of the Lord and cling to his word. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we do love your word. It offers us hope and life and guidance. Father, we ask that, that you would make us doers of your word and not hearers only. We long to follow you. We long to learn to live the way you teach us. We long to love one another as you loved us. Teach us, Lord, to be soft-hearted toward your word, to break down our barriers. Help us to put to death what remains of the flesh and its deceitful desires and help us to turn a deaf ear to the, the, the seat of the world and the evil one. We ask it for Christ's sake, Lord. Walk with us. Uh, shine the light of your gospel into our lights and uh, always light our path for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.